I have some sad news to report. Uh-oh. I don't think you're ready for this. I, I've been traveling a lot lately. You have? I have. I, I could do the whole rundown, but the most important thing is the sadness to talk about. The sadness is, I'm not even going to let you guess because you'd never guess. The sadness is, I left a Lammy in a rental car. So how dare you? <laughs> it's a black Lammy. It was in a black console. Oh, I returned the car in the Seattle Tacoma rental car parking garage. I could not see it. I am very bummed. And now we must have a Lammy funeral. Mm. A moment me, of silence. For let, the me pour one, let me pour one out for the Lammy. The Lammy gets respect. The Lammy got more respect than, ar- than an architect. <laughs> For those who don't know, it's a fountain pen. I mean, there's probably people out there, shame on you, who don't know what a Lammy is. Exactly. That's what it is. So one time I had my special edition, limited edition, orange Lammy. <laughs> special clipped, special and limited edition stickers. Well, special to me, but it was a limited edition. one, And, it, and I always clip them to my shirt. And didn't realize that it was clipped to my shirt. And when I put my seatbelt on and drove to the um, job site that it had come on clip. So it was, you know, just like sitting, you know, it either like fell into my shirt or something like that. And since I don't like dressing up to me is tucking my shirt in. And this was probably one of those occasions where I did not dress up. I parked the truck. It's just this whole comedy of errors here. Park the truck. I get out of the truck. I hear the pen hit the ground. I look down and I stepped out right on top of a sewer gate grate. And it fell about, I don't know, 15 feet down to the bottom of that sewer grate. And of course, the sewer grate, I couldn't lift. Yeah, I was going to like, how much, how much effort did you? I, I knew Dang. there was going to be effort applied to retrieving the, the Oh, the there, there, there was. I mean, I was, I was like looking around. I couldn't, I couldn't get it off because it wasn't like, you know, just like your two by two one. It was like a really long, you know, grate and all that other stuff. And so I was just like, I can't believe it. And I've never been able to find another replacement for it i mean they do make orange ones but this one was a special orange one okay listeners we both cormac and i are both lamulous i know cormac is actually not lamulous oh, i'm definitely I, not lamulous i am lamulous <laughs> but your favorite lammy fountain pen is gone so my favorite lammy fountain pen is gone however sitting next to me is a terracotta lammy and a navy blue lammy Many, many lammies. Many lammies. <laughs> many lammies. I'm, I am rarely ever lammyless now. However, I am always like hypervigilant on like where I'm clipping it and making sure that like, you know, now to your defense though, like now that that's happened to me, I always unclip it and either put it in my pocket or I put it in the center console. You may have done that. I'm, I- and <laughs> This is exactly what I did. Oh, for, well, and it was it was a rental car. I was I, so okay. So here's the the ver- here's the story. Here's here's what I've been doing. So I I think we we I was the, one of the last recordings we did. I was actually in Kansas when we did this. So 
Obviously, I flew from Southern California to Kansas via Denver. There are no flights nowadays that are not on time. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's it's infuriating. Like like this is you know you, you can pay the full price. You can pay all the prices, and and the planes will still be late. <laughs> and so I got into Kansas City late. Like it was like eleven when I finally I was supposed to get there at like seven thirty. You know get a rental car, drive an hour to Topeka, try to find the parking garage for this hotel, walk two blocks with your stuff, check into the hotel late, right? Um, luckily, I'm still on Pacific Coast time, so it's, it's okay. I'm not, I'm not dying. It's not close. Topeka is not close to the airport. And so anyway, I, I did the thing that we talked about in the previous episode, gave that, that and I, I will tie this into kind of like how the audience received this, but not until I get to the other presentation that I did. So three days there back to Kansas city with the rental car. And okay. So data point number one, I rented a, you know, every rental car now is, is always, they're always new, right? So brand new Toyota Corolla. I was trying to get you to get a car that wastes more gas, right? And no, I just want the Corolla and the Corolla for three days was $68. All right. For, for all three days. Yes. Wow. I, I don't understand that, right? Okay, so that's that's a data point to keep in mind as I work my way through this travel adventure. Um, so then I was going to fly back to Southern California, but I decided, okay, so side story, while all this, all this stuff is going on, <laughs> I'm also selling my house, right? And I don't know if we've talked about that yet on the show because I can't keep everything in my brain anymore, but I'm selling my house and looking to move to Washington State. So I decided I changed my flights to go to Seattle. Now, again, no flight is on time anymore. So I get to Seattle at like 1130 at night, right? <laughs> and now I am on East. Well, I'm on Midwest time. So I'm a couple hours ahead and it sucks. It's brutal. So I get there and then I have to drive like 45 minutes to an hour east of Seattle to Snoqualmie where I was going to be staying and looking for houses like that it was just like i gotta go up there and like figure out where we want to land because we had not really figured that out yet we knew we, we knew the state we were going to but we did not know where in the state we just know like sounds, sounds familiar <laughs> so this is this is what i spent i i just spent four days up there okay so any guesses on how much a rental car costs in seattle it, it was a Toyota Camry, so it is a, a bigger car for for no reason. Like I didn't need a bigger car, but it's just the car that that they gave me, the cheapest car I could I'm get. Gonna go with uh, at least about like three fifty, three seventy higher. Wow, how many days? Six hundred and twenty dollars for four days. What is up with that? Like, wow, this is this is like gas prices in California versus you know. So like it was literally it's six dollars for for gas in California per gallon. It was three something in Kansas, right? So what is going on? Why why do us on this coast have to spend so much more money for the things than than it makes Kansas very appealing in some ways? <laughs> when is it going to dawn on you that maybe Kansas should be where you go instead of? Washington state. <laughs> okay. But the reason I want to go to Washington, I want mountains. I want green. 
Kansas, uh, there, there are, there are some for their slight right? hilliness. Like yeah, exactly. dead flat. <laughs> Yeah, there's there's elevation gain. So um, <laughs> no, there isn't. <laughs> no, there isn't. Yeah. So so that that's a data point number two, right? It's just car rentals, uh, and you can see where people are, and and I guess what the demand is for rental cars is just incredible. So I spent, I probably drove about five to six to seven hundred miles. I did not keep track of the mileage, but I drove a lot in up there because I wanted to look at some very different areas. So I did that over the weekend. Then I flew to Medford, Oregon. I was supposed to, again, fly back to Southern California, change my plans, fly to Medford, Oregon, where my parents were. And then because my dad and I went in to buy a enclosed cargo trailer so that we could move stuff because they're going to be moving too. And so we're like, we could buy a trailer we can do all our moving and we can sell it at the end and come out even instead of just giving thousands of dollars to, to moving it's companies. Not a or bad to idea, U-Haul. actually, because I could give you the data points for how much I spent at U-Haul. Dude, I, and I'm, I'm got to do that, too. Right. So this was just like to save some mm-hmm. of that. So, yeah. So so then I drove 700 miles with my parents back down to Southern California and uh, and then I drove down to San Diego to deliver a presentation on kind of disruptive technology and architecture to the AIA's large firm roundtable. So, so in in Kansas, it's the AIA annual meeting for their. They just celebrated a hundred a hundred years of being together, and it's like, what's the next hundred years going to look like, right? And then I go to, so, so it was kind of a, a similar theme, right, of emerging tech and, and where technology and architecture, how they're co-evolving. And then go to San Diego and I, and I meet with the AIA large firm roundtable CFOs, right? So it's chief financial officers of the largest firms in the nation who are part of the LFRT. And those are two very different audiences, right? The general AIA membership in Kansas Mostly kind of small to medium-sized firms. I think there was somebody from HOK there, um, but that's probably the biggest. They're obviously coming from like Kansas City to to be there, to to be in Topeka. And then there's all of the large firm CFOs, not architects, not in the day-to-day of project delivery, obviously thinking about the firm financials and strategy and things like that. How do you? Th- how would you guess those two audiences received a similar themed presentation? Architects, non-architects. You know. I, I I have a feeling. I mean, I know how I would like it to have been received, but I have a feeling that <laughs> the way that it was received was actual the reception. actual reception was most likely more favorable on the CFOs because they're looking for productivity, return on investment, things like that. They're looking for how do you do, you know, how would you become more productive and save money kind of thing? And possibly I'm, I'm kind of just guessing, right? You're, you're totally on track. (laughs) You're totally on track. I mean, think about like the general AIA, you know, especially an annual meeting, it's a multi-day thing. There's everybody from firms are there. So you, you get the CEO down to like the new hire who is an AIA member who pulled off going to this conference, right? So it's a fully programmed multi-day, two-day conference with tours, with keynote speakers, which was what I was doing there, with 
different presentations throughout the day, things, you know, ha- you know, they've got these, I think we talked about it in the last one where they did the chit chat instead of like Pecha Kucha, right? It was their kind of own take on that. And so it was like a, there was a lot of different perspectives within architecture there. And then you get the CFOs and I was, I was there for like the, the evening before and then the presentation and, and Kermit Baker, the AIA's chief uh, economist was speaking before me. So he obviously had a lot of pertinent things to say to the CFOs regarding the, the economy and the, the financial outlook of the industry, what the billings index looks like, like all these different things. And then, and then I got to speak after that. And, and again, like very different reception from these two groups of people which I think is super interesting is like, if you, if you kind of dig into the psychology of our profession and it's funny because our profession includes these CFOs who are kind of in their own profession within our profession. They're in our profession, but they're on, it, it's interesting because they're, they're on the peripheries of our profession, but they are also on the, they're not really on the peripheries because you know, they're the ones who are helping guide like our financial stability and everything else. And they, yeah, they seem sit to on be the, the highest levels of leadership in these firms. They yeah. seem to be more inclined to look for, you know, things to advance the firm, advance the profession more so than the people who are actually the profession doing the work. Yeah. You know, like having, you know, having these conversations with them, it's, you know, you had the conversation with the architects and they're just like, yeah, yeah, it's just another pencil, whatever, you know, I mean, we'll adopt it. We'll do, you know, that's, that's how, like in some cases it, we're either the slow adopters as we've talked about on like thousands of occasions, the non-developers of, you know, our own future. And it's almost like we sort of don't, care just as long as the projects keep rolling in whatever tool we use is whatever tool we use whatever you know i'm i'm trying to sound as ambivalent as possible because that's probably the reception that you got is just like eh there's nobody out there yelling out that preach it that i i think that you know during the presentation it's kind of hard to gauge because it was a presentation it wasn't a conversation but there was the opportunity for q a at the end and there was none and so I don't know how to take that because it was the end of the conference. Okay. So I'm going to give people the benefit of the doubt to say like, okay, I, I did fly here from Southern California. If you want to talk like now's the time, cause I'm seriously got to drive all the way back to Kansas city and jump on an airplane. But, but okay. So if you're not going to take me up on that, right, we could always connect later, whatever. And it's the end. I get it. People are kind of fried. This was a lot to take in, but my goal was to, inspire people that there there are ways to leverage these tools again we're not doing this because the tools exist right we're doing it because we want to work on more meaningful things and more and have a bigger impact on what we can impact which is the whole built environment right so i know architects have a hard time getting outside of the day-to-day project schedule right because it it is all consuming. It is the deadline that we work toward until there's another one, right? Which is immediately afterward. Right. <laughs> so right. I, I I know I'm an architect yeah. too. I know what that's like. Mm-hmm. But but for the for the to really paint the picture, the the CFOs like it got into a full on discussion after that. 
And there was lots of back and forth amongst each other and engaging my input into that. So what was the the subject of the conversation? That they, What did they want to know from you, you know, glean from you, kind of like learn from you, you learn from them? I mean, what was that conversation? Because clearly that wasn't the conversation that the architects wanted to have with you. But it sounds like whatever conversation they were, the CFOs were having with you, probably was the conversation that the architects should have had with you. I think it has a lot to do with the main subject of, of, I would, you know, the overarching theme beyond just like technology's coming, you can love it or hate it. It doesn't matter. It's here. Um, It's what are you going to do with it? It was more like, man, this, this, the level, the curve of innovation is going up and up and up and up and up. We're seeing amazing things. I mean, we've talked a little bit about it on the show with with AI and Mid Journey alone, right? Uh, the different the different learning models that machine learning is applying to art and to many things. I mean, it's beyond art at this point versus adoption. And so, when you think about the tools that architects use, it pretty much is just an evolution of the drafting board, right? It's not like you said earlier, like I, it's just the tools, man. Like I just got to get the project done. I just got to deliver the the, page, the pages in the PDF, right? Yeah. Pe- so. People want to know, you know, how's this going to get me to my deadline? Yeah. And, and what's interesting to me kind of thinking about that whole thing. And I think the CFOs really are cluing in on this is that the architects have no discernment of where their value actually lies in being able to shed the things that are not adding value because we've always done those things. We've always drawn the door jam details. We've always drawn the everything to the T, you know, to the nines, right? <laughs> it's like get in and draw all these. And it's like that the drawing part is the part that is getting automated away. So, and if the goal, if the goal really is to spend our time adding more value as a company that hopefully has a future, and the only way we're actually going to do that is by adding value, providing value to clients. If we seriously are just further commoditizing our services, what does that mean? Like we're all, we all offer the same services. That's a commodity. When, when all the firms offer the same thing for the same prices, it's a commodity. So if we don't find other ways to add value to our brand specifically, then what are we doing? Like, and, and why can't architects separate themselves from being totally willing to continue to draw parking lots on every project, right? For instance, is that really what we should be spending our time doing? <laughs> no. Right. No. And so I think they can see that. Right. And it's not like they use the tools. They know they don't even necessarily know what it's like. They don't know what the process is actually like. So I think that they're they are just generally more interested because they, you know, they do work in firms. They do work in they chose architecture and they are interested in the subject and they do see cool stuff on the walls in their firms and they do talk to people about it. But they are interested in doing it better. Yeah, they're looking at all of that stuff and it's like, what are the best tools for my firm to be able to perform and compete at its highest level that, you know, will get us, land us more jobs and even improve from where we are now. And what's interesting is these two audiences are very much in the same boat of like, we, we all compete against each other at some level, maybe, probably. And, and yet here we are together as a profession. 
And, and my goal is to really bring the focus to here we are all together as a profession. How can we raise all boats so that our profession is more valued, right? Beyond just the individual firms, like they can all worry about that. And, and I think at the same time, they, they are kind of worried that like, they're still competing with all these other firms, like in the, in the, at the Kansas one, I, I just, I kind of get that sense like, okay, like, well, HOK is going to do this, but I can't, I'm not going to do that. Right. So am I going to lose more jobs to them because they put money aside to do this at the LFRT? Like they're seriously competing with each other, but they are also actively working together, right? Because they, they also know that there's enough work for everybody. Everybody wins a lot of work. So I don't know. It's a, it's a complicated puzzle, but I was just really surprised at how engaged the CFOs were compared to architects. Yeah, that's that that is, that is very disappointing <laughs> because, you know, this is the way of the future. And there's a lot of people who are just so unwilling to embrace those next steps in the profession, you know, because they are just concerned about, hey, I'm just here to get my CEUs and maybe go on a tour or something like that you know, walk around a couple of different, uh, you know, booths and learn about high efficiency toilets, whatever. But when it's like truly engaging the next steps of the future, they're like, "Eh, yeah, it's, that's, you know, it's, it's another thing for me to learn. I don't have time. I got to get this deadline done. I got to do this. I got to do that. And, you know, we wonder, we don't really wonder, we, you and I at least don't really wonder why we seem to be so far behind in advancing this profession, you know, to the next level. Like we, we, you and I don't like at, at all, like question why we're so far behind because we see it, you know, and we wonder why, like, why does it seem like the people, you know, that don't have skin in the game of like the actual architecting are more interested in advancing your, our profession than you are. Cause they see so much yeah. opportunity yeah. too. Like, I mean, that's where the technologists are coming in who don't have a background in the profession and the baggage. And they're like, dude, that's so much opportunity here. Oh my goodness. Like I, I want a piece of that. And they're going to be the ones who are going to be making money off of architects when architects are wondering why we're not making money off of architects and architecture. It, it It is very interesting to kind of think of it from that perspective. And the, the CFOs are looking for opportunities to add value to their companies and, and bring this information back and, and act upon it. And what was interesting to me is, is that I, I posed it as like, this is a design problem for the profession. You can think of it as a design problem for your business. Do you still have the same? Raise your hand if you have the same business model as you've always had, right? Everybody raises their hand. That's all we do is the same business model. And right? that's scary. It is. It is scary that there's not diversification, at least, let alone like shedding one to go to another. Or just the acknowledgement that the the profession has changed. And, and so your business model should change with it just to stay ahead of it. Or, or maybe stand alongside it. I don't know. You know, and and I think when you when I present it as a design problem, I don't I don't know if if the the audience that was there agrees or disagrees. Maybe they disagree that it's a design problem for the for the profession. But the CFOs were like totally on board with that, and I thought that was hilarious because they're not designers. 
and they don't even do design thinking for the most part. Like, I'm not going to say they're not innovative and they're not smart. Like, they're brilliant. I get no, it. They, they, see, they see it as a design problem because they see it as a design problem that, you know, has ramifications to the bottom line of the health of their respective firms. I mean, and clearly they have skin in that game, right? Exactly. And that's why they're interested in it. And it is a very, I don't know, I don't know where else to go with this, but I just, that that was kind of not surprised, like rhetorically surprising. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, that's the problem. Really. It's just <laughs> like, you, you know, we're, we, we seem to be so apathetic about it that, you know, it's just like, you know, it's just like, you'd never believe. And that's why when you were, you know, setting the stage for this, I was just like, yeah, I know where this is going. I, I, I mean, I would love to give the benefit of the doubt to my fellow architects to say, hey, the profession's changing. We got to change and, you know, embrace the next steps and, and actually be leaders in those next steps. And they're just like, are those next steps going to get me to my deadline faster? Because, you know, I got to, you know, I, I, I came to this uh, thing just to, like just take a break from this project for a few, for a few days, but I got to get back to it. And, and if there's no, if you're not selling me an easy button, I don't care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, can, can I sound more apathetic than that? I mean, it's just like, wow. Like that seems very, very disconcerting to me, but that is sadly the reality of the fact. It's a, uh... It's a tough spot to push from, pull from, coax, inspire uh, when you see the apathy, right? Because, like, you can't cheer it on, cheer people. Like, I, I somebody, I, I had a, I had a Twitter thread go the other day that was, I, why are people leaving the profession and going to things like tech, right? I, I think you saw that. I, I posted a an art episode which I think we could cover in a future episode, like a follow-up on, on that topic. But here's a couple of, of examples. One of them was an Arca Speak episode. One was an episode of Troxel Podcast on, this is why people are, are leaving the profession. Here's two examples, right? It, so it's anecdotal. It's not, there's no science behind this. This is just real people's experience, real experience. And so we should talk about this. We should talk about this. So, you know, my my Twitter thread was like, well, here's two examples. If you're in leadership, you should be talking about this. Like, don't look to the person to your left. Don't look to the person to your right. No, you. You should be doing something about this. You should at least be having these conversations and genuinely addressing whatever you can to address keeping talent. Because, like, this machine of unending graduates coming into your firm, like, they can see through this BS. And I think we should address that, you know. We, we we've we've hit on topics like that in the past with the the Cyark scandal and stuff like that. Then there's the people who are not leaders, right? And it's like, well, what can you do? It's like share this with your leadership. They need they do need to be having these conversations, and you can bring it into light if they're not right. If you if you don't see action being taken on these kinds of things that are brought up in these conversations that are out there for everyone to hear, they should be because it's a red flag if they're not right. And if you especially if you're seeing like your firm falling behind, if you see the toxic culture, if you see why people are leaving, that's, you know, whatever those stories are, then, then these, at least share them, share them out there. 
tons of people were were chiming in and and they were retweeting it and and favoriting it and things like that. And so obviously like it kind of struck a chord, but I was definitely thinking about the way that we received the people received these presentations at least from my perspective and how apathetic we are as an industry as a profession to changing things that are clearly not working for us. Right. Right. So how do we attract talent? How do we show people that there's a clear path for advancement in our firms? How do we, we, we don't, we like, we just don't address these things. And it's like, people are leaving. Oh yeah. And then we come up with like reasons of like why that totally makes sense. Oh yeah. They totally can get more experience working in that other, you yeah. know, market at that other firm. And that would be great for them. And like, we talk about it, like, like that's a good thing that they're leaving for them. And it's like, no, this is terrible for the firm. Like it costs a lot of money to train people and to onboard them and to bring them in and teach them all the ways and do all these things. So I don't know where I'm really going with that, but just further evidence that like there is an appetite for these kinds of conversations and for, for change to happen. And yet like there, there are the gatekeepers in this profession who just want nothing to do with it. And, and I, I asked the question, like, why is that? Why, why is it just because like you're, you're about to retire? This is so it's not your problem, right? And, and you're going to be gone before it really hits the fan or, or, or do you care at all? Like, what do we owe the future of this profession? And, and I think that like, that's the kind of conversation that you have to have for your firm, but you also need to be a part of that larger conversation of what it is for the, for the profession of architecture. Does it deserve to exist? Yeah, I was talking to somebody yesterday about. Um, you know, like the succession plans of this particular firm that he had worked for and was a pretty large, prominent firm that is gone now, you know, gone to history. But it, it just happened to be that, you know, the the senior partner had passed away and there was no plan in place for, you know, for the next steps. And And you think about this and... And you hear the stories of small firms, sole practitioners, large firms, you know, the like that aren't really planning for the future. But you can take that, you know, one step further and look at is the profession itself taking the step towards the future? And and in, in what we've been talking about now, it's no, because we're so busy focused on with the blinders on looking at, you know, like what's right in front of us, not paying attention to the next steps. And so we've literally let all of these people who either have, you know, come into the profession and was been disillusioned and left the profession and, you know, decided that, you know, they're going to, you know, go to the tech side of things and, and, you know, make their impact on the profession completely void of actually being a part of the profession. So there's all of these other people taking advantage of the succession of our profession that for some reason we don't seem to be too terribly interested in. Yeah. The biggest takeaway that I had from, from kind of following through with, with these, you know, re-listening to these episodes again, we'll, we'll cover this in a future one, but it was like, no regrets, man. I let, I left and I have no regrets. <laughs> and people move around in this profession to different firms and they have regrets all the time because of poor treatment and inequality and, and non-equity, you know, <laughs> are they like, well, this is the same as what, you know, what I left it. So like, what are you doing about it? Like, yeah. 
So, <laughs> anyway, I, I, I <laughs> all yeah. we can do is laugh at this point because I don't know if I could just keep being the cheerleader here when it's like clearly not landing with the right audience. I, I have hope for the CFOs, I guess. You stood in front of, you know, your peers telling them that this is what the future is. And they seemed so uninterested in it. But you stood in front of a crowd of, let's just call them non-peers or, or bystanders to the profession. And they were eating it up. They were listening to this. Okay, tell me more. Tell me more. This is a great conversation. Let's talk about this further. Like how much cheerleading can you do? How much leading to the water can you do? And he's like, all right, fine. If you're not going to drink, just dry up. You know, it, it's frustrating. I mean, hell, we do this because we want, you know, like we want to talk about the transparency, the life of, and all this other stuff. We don't sit here and just moan about it and say, oh, you know, like, you know, just do better. It's like, you know, giving a, giving a voice of a, at least the outlet of like, you know, here's what the future is, is holding. Can, can we all just like hold hands and like walk towards it <laughs> together? <laughs> <laughs> together. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, I, I do feel like, you know, at some point, at some place here, we'll be beating this dead horse, but it's um, maybe already, but the, 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 the profession has kind of jumped the shark here, right? It's like, Hmm, what's next? What do we do? What do we do? There are people out there very interested in solving this problem, you know, so they're going to figure out a way for sure. And so either you're going to be a part of that or you're going to go away, you know, that's kind of, I think it, it will be kind of that cut and dry. Well, I don't really know how to end on that note. That was it. After you said exactly, that was it right there. I'm going to hit stop. Thanks for listening. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. See all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what we're doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out. And don't forget to share it with your friends. We'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at arcaspeakpodcast.com where you can find our entire catalog of shows. Talk to you soon.